Who are the Koch brothers? Where did they get their billions and what are they spending it on? Jane Mayer will be here to talk about her new book, Dark Money, the hidden history of the billionaires behind the rise of the radical right. It was just one part of this underground uh, river system of money that was moving the country in a certain direction, but which the public couldn't really see. Is there an upside to spin? David Greenberg will join us to discuss his new book, Republic of Spin, an inside history of the American presidency. When he comes into office, he is seen as the guy who really knows how to play the media. He knows how to work reporters. He's great with sort of puffing up his own reputation. Alexander Alter will give us an update from the literary world. And Greg Coles has bestseller news. This is Inside the New York Times Book Review. I'm Pamela Paul. Jane Mayer is here now to talk about her new book, Dark Money, The Hidden History of the Billionaires Behind the Rise of the Radical Right. Jane, thanks so much for being here. Great to be with you. So I think that everyone refers to this book as the Koch Brothers book, but it's not just about David and Charles Koch. It's a bigger fraternity than that, actually. It's about several other families, too, who in the 1970s did not like the direction of the country and wanted to push it far to the right. And these were other families that had huge fortunes and uh, studied really how they could affect American politics and move it away from what we think of as um, kind of the post-World War II consensus that thought government could do good things. And who are the families that you're talking about? Well, there was Richard Mellon Scaife, who was an heir to the Mellon uh, fortune, which Gulf Oil is, and Mellon Banking. He was the one who went after Clinton, really. He did. He did. And what I did for this book was got a hold of his unpublished memoir. In it, he kind of makes fun of his image as kind of the evil manipulator of the right wing. But he, he put what he estimates to be a billion dollars into building up all kinds of institutions that would push his conservative worldview and kind of wage a war of ideas against liberalism beginning in the 70s. So you have the Kochs, you have Richard Mellon Scaife. Who are the other families? that? One is John M. Olin, who uh, inherited a family company that he built bigger that was chemicals, ammunition, and uh, the other were Lind and Harry Bradley, who had a kind of a, a company that made mechanical things. And most of these families had reasons for really hating the modern regulatory state. They didn't like the taxes. They didn't like the regulations on their businesses. And they specifically hated the environmental movement, which cracked down on several of these companies in a big way. I think the reason people think of this as the Koch brothers book is probably because of the piece you did for The New Yorker. Was it five years ago? Right. It and was 2010. OK. Mm -hmm. And is that was that the genesis of the book? Did you start off saying this is just a story and then it got bigger? It was the genesis of the book. And what I realized was it was the tip of the iceberg. And it was just one part of this kind of underground uh, river system of money that was moving the country in a certain direction, but which the public couldn't really see. So I set out to kind of follow the money and explain really who the characters were that were giving the money. I, I Instead of it just being statistics on a page, I wanted readers to get a sense of the people involved in this. So let's talk about uh, the Koch brother people. Charles and David are the two brothers, but you start with their father. The who father was... who started the fortune's name was Fred Koch, a self-made sort of oil patch 
very smart man who figured out how to refine oil in a better way. He was a rough, tough character, larger than life, who put a very strong imprint on his four sons. Two of those are what we think of as the Koch brothers. The two others went through 20 years of fights with the two brothers that we think of as the Koch brothers. Are there any women in this picture? We never hear about the Koch women. (laughs) There is a Koch mother, as there must be in most families. There's a mom. But she was a, a very less powerful figure. They called her Mighty Mary in the family, but she was very young when Fred Koch married her. Very beautiful. I've seen pictures of her with a kind of an amused look on her face of tall, slender, blonde, well-educated, but she became a socialite. And so she was very busy to the extent that you have socialites in Wichita. She was very busy with social obligations. The father was often gone on business and the children were brought up by hired help. In Wichita, were the Cokes well-known, or did they kind of lie low? They were known to be one of the richest families in town. And in fact, I think when Fred Koch died, he was the richest man in Kansas. So people knew them as rich, and they knew them as politically ultra-right-wing. I mean, what happens is Fred, after working for Stalin to try to make some money by building up the um, oil refineries in the Soviet Union, becomes staunchly anti-communist, comes back to America and helps found the John Birch Society. The John Birch Society had an active chapter in Wichita. So Fred was known as the John Birch Society guy there. Do we know what happened in Russia that made that shift to total anti-communism. He worked with a number of engineers who were, he thought, later assassinated by Stalin. And so he thought of it as a hideously brutal regime, which of course it was. This kind of set him on this trajectory that it took him so far to the right that in the John Birch Society, he was part of the group that believed that among other things, they, they believed that Dwight Eisenhower was a communist. They saw sort of conspiracies behind every corner. Um, there's an FBI file on the father because they thought he was hmm. kind of so far out. And David and Charles, were they libertarians all along? Or? Well, they were brought up to be highly suspicious of the U.S. government. Mm-hmm. And they also joined the John Birch Society when they were young. But they kind of took a slightly different direction in it. They became much more, and it's really Charles we're talking about here, became much more attracted to these fringe economic theories that turned the kind of anti-government philosophy that the Birch Society had into an one that was against the government doing anything to stop business. They wanted to keep the government from regulating business, from taxing business. They were all right on the edge of being anarchists, which is why William F. Buckley who was, you know, the great conservative leader, Mm -hmm. described the libertarian groups that Charles and David belonged to very early on as anarcho-totalitarians, the anarcho from anarchist. The books describes them as radicals. Mm -hmm. They describe themselves as radicals. They were really very far out. And David ran on as a libertarian in 1980 office and then said he would never run again. What happened? He ran on the libertarian ticket as vice president of the United States to challenge Ronald Reagan because they thought Reagan was too liberal. And he got something like 1% of the vote and at that point decided it was hopeless to just win the democratic way through elections and that they would have to change, as they someone describes them, change the whole script that politicians used. It 
launched them on a fascinating kind of uh, study of how do you change how America thinks and votes. And they built a system that was meant to manufacture political change in America by changing everything from the ground up, including think tanks, universities, creating ideas, creating pressure groups. So backing candidates was just the final step. There were many steps before that. So the money goes to, as you said, think tanks, universities. In terms of political campaigns, how much of it goes to national and how much is it local? Are they focusing on local judges and local government or how does that break well, down? It's you know We're talking about a story, partly what I tried to do was show that this has lasted 40 years. I mean, mm-hmm. this is a plan. There was a blueprint that David Koch talks about building a secret movement 40 years ago. So there are many different uh, twists and turns in the story, but they've put a lot of attention into state politics, especially in recent years. The high watermark in a way was 2010. I don't know if you remember, but there was a midterm election when many of the legislatures across America switched from being democratically dominated to Republican. And what I did was follow the money, and you can see a lot of it came from the Koch network and people they were working with, and it was directed specifically at capturing state houses. Are there PACs that are especially associated with the Koch brothers? Well, they have an organization called Freedom Partners, which mm-hmm. is it's something that is a uh, uh, it's called a, according to the IRS a 501c6, which is a business league. That's the umbrella disclosed umbrella group of donors that get involved in elections. But what the reason this book's called Dark Money is that an awful lot of the money that has come through their network of donors, and by that I mean the 400 or so people they join their contributions with, an awful lot of that is secret. And so are the names of the the contributors. I mean, partly what I tried to do in this book was uh, reveal the names of who they're working with so that people reading it can understand a little bit more about the profiles of the people they're working with. How hard was that to uncover? There's been fantastic reporting done by a number of other people on this, too, including at The New York Times, where, for instance, you have Nick Confessori, who's mm-hmm. a marvel at reporting this kind of thing. And um, so there have been breaks, and one of them is that a guest list of the network was left in a hotel room um, and somehow became public. So you could see at least 400 or so of the members. That alone provided a you know huge insight into who these people are. I imagine the Koch brothers, the family, didn't look too kindly on your 2010 New Yorker piece. Did they deliberately try to obstruct you in your reporting? Yeah, they didn't like it. And I'm sorry that they didn't. They, they didn't cooperate in it. And I had hoped to interview them. And the same is true for the book. I always think it's better if you can to try to get the voices of the people you're writing about in a in a story. And, and so since they didn't give me an interview, I went to great lengths to call through things that they've said and written and speak to their friends and other family members and people they've worked with so that you get a rich portrait. It's it's not a cartoon picture of them. Um, David Koch doesn't have a low profile in New York City where he is a huge patron of the arts. I imagine, was it how out and about is he here? And was it hard to sort of find associates of his, friends of his here who are willing to talk to you? Or did they kind of tell everyone, don't talk to Jane Mayer? It wasn't easy to get people who are close to the Cokes to cooperate 
It took a lot of work, and a lot of people are scared of them, I have to say. I've had interviews with people who were looking over their shoulders, who were didn't want to meet in a public place, people who warned me, be careful, um, they play hardball. So there's a, there's a kind of a fear factor that surrounds them. Did you feel afraid working on the book? I felt uncomfortable some of the time. I'm a pretty non-paranoid person, but they had gone after me in a kind of a personal way after the New Yorker piece came out in 2010. Um, there was an effort to kind of plant some negative stories about me in the press that led back to them and operatives working with them. And I tell that story in the, in the book. And, and I wasn't alone. Uh, I mean, as I did the reporting, I realized that there's a pattern here. The Kochs have long hired private eyes to dig up dirt on people who were challenging them. And that includes, you'll see if you read the book, two federal prosecutors, one state prosecutor, and a former FBI agent. They all tell their stories in here. Each one of them felt someone's following me, someone's going through my garbage. Um, you know, it's a it's an uncomfortable feeling. You have a piece in this week's New Yorker about their current PR campaign and effort to kind of refashion their public image. Do you think that that's related to, to this book coming out? Oh, you know, that would be probably flattering myself to say that. I think that they've got bigger image problems than me. They've got a long history of legal judgments against them for pollution problems and other things. And if they want to be uh, the kind of power they're aiming to be in American politics, they, they realized after 2010, when Mitt Romney didn't win, that they needed to go back to the drawing board and try to come across in a less toxic way. And I have a tape that's described in here of their operatives talking about it. And they're saying, we have to come across as having good intent. And one way to do that is to form alliances with unlikely partners. And so pretty soon after that, they start doing things like giving a whole lot of money to the United Negro College Fund and working with the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers on criminal justice reform. I mean, I should say they'd worked with them for a number of years, but they hadn't worked on issues that were popular in the same way. What they're working on now are issues that are beneficial to trying to help poor people who are in jail and prison on drug charges. And that was something new for them. So what I wrote about in The New Yorker was kind of an effort to rebrand themselves in a big mm-hmm. way. What is this coming election going to look like in terms of the Koch's impact? Well, it's extraordinary. What, what they have put together is the equivalent of a national political party at this point. There's a new paper out by Harvard that came out last week by Theda Scotchpole, a professor there, and it describes them as as having created a budget and hired enough people that it is bigger by far than the Republican National Committee at this point. And they're talking about putting together a jackpot of donations for candidates they support along with their allies that is $889 million. Not all of it will go to campaigns. Some of it will go to other kinds of advocacy. But that's gigantic. All right. Um, Well, something to look forward to. Jane Mayer, I'm such a huge fan. Um, Jane is the author of The Dark Side, in addition to Dark Money, and also a book written with our former um, executive editor, Jill Abramson, um, Strange Justice, The Selling of Clarence Thomas. 
thank you so much for being here. It's so great to be with you. Thanks for having me. The book again is Dark Money, The Hidden History of the Billionaires Behind the Rise of the Radical Right by Jane Mayer, reviewed on our cover this week by Alan Ehrenhold. Here to discuss the latest picture book scandal, Alexander Alter and our children's book editor, Maria Russo. Hi, guys. Hi. All right. Last up was a fine dessert. What's the controversy now? Well, it's interestingly, it's related. And by total coincidence, both of these books are about baking. The- it's not a coincidence, Alexander. It's a <laughs> it's, conspiracy. It's a conspiracy. Uh, so on Sunday, Scholastic announced that they are stopping the distribution of this book called A Birthday Cake for George Washington by Raman Ganeshram, which was illustrated by Vanessa Brantley-Newton, and they're accepting returns. And um, the controversy sort of was kicked off by um, there was a very negative Kirkus essay about it and a lot of Amazon reviews that were very negative because the the book is about George Washington's slave whose name was Hercules. It focuses on Hercules and his daughter Delia's pride and pleasure in baking this special cake for George Washington. They were enslaved, but he sort of loved them and took good care of them, but it left out a lot of the harsh realities of slavery and the evils of it and the fact that Hercules eventually escaped and left his daughter there. So people were kind of disturbed at the lack of context. I feel like it would be out of place to ask what kind of cake it was. Maria, uh, do well, you know? Well, the story hinges <laughs> on the fact that there's no sugar and uh, they come up with the idea of using honey instead. So it's their their ingenuity. And, and oddly, the controversy over a fine dessert also showed um, an enslaved mother and daughter baking together, and uh, the slave girl in that picture book was smiling, and a lot of people thought that was disturbing to sort of show them sort of enjoying themselves and goofing around and not emphasizing, you know, some of the horrors and and all the history of slavery. And as a side note, it's interesting that the illustrator Sophie Blackhall of that book uh, just won the Caldecott uh, for another book this yes. year. And that book was not withdrawn, I think. Um, a know, Fine Dessert. A Fine was Dessert not was not withdrawn. The, the publisher of that book said, you know, they acknowledged that some people could misconstrue the illustration. They said, you know, we're sorry if it appears insensitive, but it was just a few pages in a larger book, and they kind of defended it. Whereas this book, I think, um, went much further, and and people's criticisms were really taken seriously. Well, with a fine dessert, also the author ended up apologizing for the book and then donating the fee she had gotten to uh, We Need Diverse Books, which is the organization that's promoting more diversity in children's literature. So very different reaction on the part of the publisher, Schwartz and Wade, uh, publisher of A Fine Dessert, which is part of Random House, stood behind the book. In this case, what happened with Scholastic? I think, you know, they, they looked at the criticisms and saw, you know, that they were really on point. In a, in a comment that they put up on their website on Sunday, they said, uh, we are stopping the distribution of the book entitled A Birthday Cake for George Washington. While we have great respect for the integrity and scholarship of the author, illustrator, and editor, we believe that without more historical background on the evils of slavery than this book for younger children can provide, the book may give a false impression of the reality of the lives of slaves and therefore should be withdrawn. And, you know, they are like their main market is schools as well. And I think that was a big problem for them when they realized that no schools would probably want to use this book. There was an earlier statement by Andrea Davis Pinckney, who's also an accomplished author of books on African-American themes herself, that defended the book. How did how did that all play out? 
so Andrea Davis Pinckney is, is the editor of the book. She's an African-American, and she's a winner of the Coretta Scott King Award. And she's, you know, been widely congratulated in publishing for focusing on African-American issues in children's books. She did write a defense of the book, but I think that simply kind of inflamed the, the outrage. And people felt like, you know, no matter your intentions, the way this book appears, the message that it's sending to children, it's just not historically accurate. Yeah, I mean, I think there is a valid debate here about how do we treat the the work of slaves, the often accomplished and important work that slaves did, and can a book show the pride that they took and the value that was placed on that work? And I think the consensus is that you can emphasize, and, and the author of the Birthday Cake for George Washington books said, the fact is that George Washington respected him. But the critics have said, well, but how do you respect someone who you own also? And so right. this book didn't, although, you know, she did mention that in an afterword that, that Hercules escaped, his daughter was left enslaved, you know, it wasn't a rosy picture. Can you give this story, put this story in front of children without from the very beginning emphasizing this is a deeply right. troubling and evil uh, situation? You can see where the, where the, the intentions were, uh, were good in that every January a bunch of books come out that are targeted to Washington's birthday. That's right. And you get a lot of presidential history, um, interestingly, followed then by the Black History books uh, that come out for Black History Month in February. Um, But those January books have traditionally been very white, very founding fathers for obvious reasons. The cherry tree again. Yes. Who made the the cake for Washington's birthday? It's a valid Right. They wanted to make sure that there there was a representation of the broad spectrum of American And Hercules was an interesting personality. And right now in children's picture books, there's a lot of effort to bring unknown historical personalities who were interesting into the conversation. And, you know, he was considered the first celebrity chef, you know, and people did know him. Who children... were the critics, Maria? What was the well, driving force? Because well, uh, did it happen on social media? Was it was there backlash from booksellers? I think I think that, as Alexander says, there was the essay in Kirkus by the children's books editor, Vicki Smith, I think really started things off and said, well, hey, look, you know, there was a big controversy over a fine dessert last year. The author and illustrator of that book were both white. Here we have a very strikingly similar book with everyone involved being, you know, African-American. And how how will this be treated? In some ways, it's even more uh, disturbing because there's an actual historical figure here and the the facts aren't presented to children entirely in their fullness, whereas A Fine Dessert was completely just fictional, two fictional characters, a mother and child. Hercules, you know, was enslaved. And in Philadelphia, where Washington, where the president was stationed then, there was no slavery, and he had to bring his slaves back to Virginia every six months in order to keep them enslaved. And so Hercules, every six months, had to be hauled back to the plantation. You know, none of this is in the book. I'm curious if librarians have spoken out about this because there have been, yeah, librarians, and as you say, it's it's so it starts with the you know an essay like the essay in Kirkus, and then social media. There's a very strong children's literature social media presence right now. There's a lot of debate centered around the We Need Diverse Books movement. This one, I think, was was even harsher than A Fine Dessert. People were comparing it to, is our next book going to be, you know, Anne and Otto Frank, Bake a Cake for Hitler. You know, this is... You know, the would, Amazon reviews the were Amazon, absolutely There was an Amazon campaign. There was a one-star cam- Amazon. Seems like it was a kind of concerted effort to do one-star reviews that, that slammed the book. A lot of Twitter 
talk. And I think, you know, like as Alexandra was saying, Scholastic just looked at who's their market right. and said, this isn't going to work. But the reason I bring up librarians is because there's such a strong um, advocacy among um, school librarians and public librarians about uh, censorship and, and not allowing books that people disagree with to not be out there and to be read critically. So I'm curious if there were any voices from that community on the other side. That's a great point. Really, none that I saw. I think this is, as, as Alexandra was saying, this is a rare situation. You don't often see this, but I think I haven't heard anyone saying, no, we should let put this book out there and let, let the children see it. I mean, it's been pretty um, universal. Whereas with A Fine Dessert, you do have lots of people still defending it and saying that this is, that there is a context here that's not focused on slavery and that assuming that the adult reading to the child would explain to the child the situation. I think a lot of the problem you have here is that a six-year-old child in America today might not ever have heard about slavery. Well, it's interesting that uh, here was an effort to kind of marry the presidential books of January with the Black History right. Month books of February that obviously did not work Backfired. out. Uh, let's, we'll stay tuned to see if uh, if any book manages to bring the two together. Thanks, Maria. Thanks. Thanks, Thanks Alexandra. Our prime concern is that in dealing with the fundamental law of the land, in assuming finally to interpret it and therefore finally to make it, the acts of the course of the court should be subject to and not above the final control of the people as a whole. That was Teddy Roosevelt, a rare recording from the Library of Congress. And to talk about that recording and other presidential speechifying, David Greenberg is here to talk about his new book, Republic of Spin, an Inside History of the American Presidency. David, thanks for being here. Sure, my pleasure. All right. Well, this is a very topical subject, but you take a historical look. Tell us a little bit about the genesis of the book. The book actually grew out of my first book, which was on Richard Nixon's image called Nixon's Shadow, the History of an Image. That book was sort of the, a study of how a presidential's image gets seen by different groups of Americans over different periods of time. And it drew me into the question of presidential image making and presidential message craft. And the more I looked into it, the more I saw there was a fundamental change at the start of the 20th century with Theodore Roosevelt in particular, but also Woodrow Wilson. These were presidents who really took it as their mission to try to influence public opinion, to win support for their agenda. And presidents in the 19th century, for the most part, really didn't do that. I started with the story of Roosevelt and Wilson, and I take it through the 20th century into our own times and also look at the spin doctors who from the very beginning were there helping them craft their messages, mm -hmm. craft their images, reach public opinion. It seems that, you know, when people think about presidential image, Nixon is that first name that comes to mind because of the infamous sweating on television. How much of this is tied to media? And were there were there changes that had to do with popularization of photography or in the newspaper business that brought about those changes at the turn of the last century? Or was it something else? Right. Uh, for Roosevelt, it's partly about new media. He is one of the first presidents to use newsreels and to get his face and his body walking out there in front of people so they could feel they knew him. It's so great now to be able to go online and to see those old uh, images, those old video reels of TR. Yeah, and there's there's a few places where you can even hear recordings of his voice. That was a new phenomenon. So the president who had been this remote figure 
uh, starts to become much more accessible, much more familiar. You know, by the 1920s, which is the age of Ballyhoo, uh, you know, Calvin Coolidge is talked about as the most photographed man in America. It's remarked that a single speech of his heard over the radio reaches more Americans than heard Theodore Roosevelt in his lifetime. Do you start the book with that 1896 election? Yeah, what I do is a little bit of a, um, a flashback. So the opening scenes are with Theodore Roosevelt because he's really the pivotal figure at the dawn of presidential spin. But then I sort of rewind a little bit and I look at some of his predecessors, including William McKinley, who, as you say, in 1896 is an important figure. Uh, they run this massive uh, media and publicity campaign to put McKinley's name out there. And ironically, Theodore Roosevelt, who is so much a salesman himself, gets very disdainful and says, you know, they advertised McKinley like he was patent medicine. I mean, I bring up that because, um, as you know, uh, Karl Rove has a book out now also uh, specifically on the 1896 election, arguing that this is the, the election that kind of changed the way it's done. Yeah. And I thought the... Uh, uh, review by my old uh, professor, Ira Katz Nelson, was really quite thoughtful, and he was uh, quite admiring of of the book in many ways. You know, Rove is is right that this was a kind of hinge in how campaigns are run, both for McKinley and also for William Jennings Bryan, who's also in my book. Uh, Bryan's the one who says the candidate has to be out there barnstorming the country, stumping around, which used to be not done very much. McKinley, meanwhile, makes the first campaign film, that there's a short film of McKinley sort of walking on his uh, grounds in Canton, Ohio. That was a kind of landmark event. People in New York movie houses went crazy. They thought they hmm. were seeing the actual presidential candidate in the flesh. Is this something that, that our podcast listeners could actually go online and find? Is that accessible? I don't think you can find the McKinley film, but there are other early films, uh, footage of, of Wilson, of Roosevelt, and it is something you see. And then in the 1920s, there's a really groundbreaking campaign biopic that's made uh, for Herbert Hoover called Herbert Hoover Master of Emergencies. And there you can see the whole thing online. Just to go back to Teddy Roosevelt for a minute, it's interesting because his voice was kind of surprisingly high. And I wonder, did that come up at all, you know, that he sort of didn't have what one thought of as a presidential voice? Yeah, I mean, some people made fun of it. He had this sort of very um, distinctive style and people often mimicked it. Uh, Upton Sinclair, in his uh, recollections of his meeting with Roosevelt, they kind of joined forces to try to uh, pass the uh, meat inspection bill famously after Sinclair's The Jungle appeared. But Sinclair sort of talks about how you imitate Roosevelt with stammering certain syllables and mm -hmm. going into that high falsetto. Uh, so he did not have that kind of classical oratory that we associate with kind of the great uh, rabble-rousers of the 19th century, but he had force, he had determination, and this kind of sheer charisma that poured through that made Energy. him a very— Yeah, exactly. Made him a very popular and effective speaker to large crowds. So we're talking here about McKinley and, and Roosevelt and Coolidge and Harding as if they're making these decisions, but at what point did professionals kind of come in and tell the presidents, this is what you should be doing? Well, this also happens very early on. I mean, Roosevelt— kind of takes over and he's mostly doing it himself. 
but he has the good sense to start appointing people to help him out with his management of the press. So, for example, he appoints uh, a New York journalist named Joseph Buckland Bishop to run the Panama Canal Project, which is one of TR's pet projects. And Bishop is there to basically be the press agent. And press agent was kind of a derogatory term. And Congress gets up in arms. There's a big uh, backlash, this controversy, should taxpayer dollars be used to fund this press agent? Uh, and eventually they sort of take the name press agent off the title, but he continues to do that job. What does the official title early on become once they decide press agent isn't the way to go? Well, they move into various things, you know, public information officer, sort of a lot of these euphemisms are developed uh, because the associations with press agentry and this kind of you know, rough style of salesmanship that comes out of the theater and the circus and P.T. Barnum is seen as sort of beneath politics. When did the PR industry uh, arise and, and at what point after it's kind of it took off, did it go into specifically political press relations? Yeah, so it's in the same period. I mean, the progressive period, as we call it, is really a, a very formative period in the development of you know, what we now call spin. So you start to get the first professional PR firms. They start to enter politics. And, and a lot of those early spin doctors, I uh, tell their stories, their biographies, their influence on uh, the candidates, people like Ivy Lee, who sort of mainly worked for the Rockefellers, but also dabbles in campaign. People like Albert Lasker, who was head of one of the big advertising agencies who helps engineer Warren Harding's victory. You start seeing, you know, with uh, Harding and throughout the 20s and ever after, there's always spin doctors there. And I, some of them have become, have been lost to history. And I kind of excavate them and tell their stories and how they help presidents and the advice they gave. It's really a kind of hidden history in some ways of who, who these people were. All right. So you're looking at the last century or so of uh, presidential uh, candidates and then presidents. Who is the kind of unexpected master of PR? Herbert Hoover, for example. I mentioned that newsreel, master of emergencies. When he comes into office, he is seen as the guy who really knows how to play the media. He knows how to work reporters. <laughs> um, he's, he's great with sort of puffing up his own reputation. But during the Depression, he finds this suddenly isn't helping him very much. He puts together a committee. Edward Bernays, the great PR guy of the era, is on the committee. And eventually Bernays says to him, essentially, look, I'm not a magician. You need a jobs program. Right. Uh, and so Hoover is kind of remembered as, yeah, he wouldn't kiss babies and he wasn't, you know, so good on the campaign trail. But that's really because his policies failed. Same story with Jimmy Carter. All the tropes that we see about Ronald Reagan, about right. the media president, how deft he was, were there for Carter, too, in 1976. Right, when this he miraculous ran. peanut farmer who kind of rose and... But also that he was seen as this master of the media. And there's a New York Times magazine cover that shows him like a cartoon in the control room controlling ABC, NBC, CBS. I hope you have that image in the book. <laughs> we could not get that image. But when he, you know, turns out to struggle as president and inflation's through the roof, the hostage crisis. Then he's remembered, oh, he was terrible with the media. But he wasn't terrible me with the media. He was great with the media until his presidency went south. So do you differentiate in the book between kind of electoral media efforts and then presiding once they're in power, how they how well they're able to handle the press? Yeah, the book really uh, weaves together the stories of campaign trail spin and 
presidential governing spin. And it's sort of a myth that sometime recently we kind of crossed this line where, you know, it used to be spin or media manipulation was reserved for campaigning. But then when you got to governing, you know, it fell by the wayside. Well, I think the book shows going back again to Theodore Roosevelt, going back to Woodrow Wilson, how much even in those days they were aware of the need to move public opinion, to marshal these tools and techniques of press management to achieve the policy goals that they wanted to achieve. So the line between governance and campaigning that we often presume to have been crossed recently you know, it was actually crossed, you know, more than a century ago. All right. Speaking of governance uh, crossings of line, I mean, I what did you make of Obama um, and Seinfeld? I have not seen the uh, Obama Seinfeld video. Um, I've seen some of the others where he did Between Two Ferns. What Obama is realizing uh, and coming up against is that the proliferation of spin and the proliferation of media outlets in some degrees, in some ways, has made the president's job easier, but in many ways has made it much harder. It's harder simply to get the public's attention. When Eisenhower or Kennedy wanted a platform, they could commandeer the three nightly news networks, give a speech from the Oval Office. Everybody watched. There was minimal if any, commentary afterwards picking apart the speech. It does seem like the presidential candidates themselves are making decisions in a fractured media marketplace about which outlets they'll talk to and which ones they won't, where they would say, you know, we're only going to talk to Fox News and we're not going to talk to CNN and that kind of thing. Right. Well, even Clinton starts doing that in the 90s, that there's enough fracturing of media then that Clinton realizes Local media can be his friend uh, if he's getting a lot of, you know, grief from the National Washington Press Corps. He can go to kind of local stations and do these satellite interviews. You know, he did Larry King and Arsenio Hall. So you start to see in the 90s this effort to find ways around that kind of blockade or hostile adversarial press that has developed in Washington. So Obama has been, been trying to do this, too, to reach voters, citizens who aren't going to be consumers of the mainstream political channels and still speak to them. And often, you know, they may not be as um, critical or they might you know, be more receptive to a message that comes through a comedy show or through some niche programming. Uh, how effective that is, how much that really has helped him get out his message or achieve policy gains, I don't know. With each new technology, presidents and can candidates sort of learn to adapt and they're different, you know, they experiment. I think we're still in the stage of figuring out how this new landscape of partisan media and social media work. Politicians are still figuring it out too. And we see that, I think, in a lot of Obama's efforts. Um, you finished this book, which is, you know, largely historical in its scope before the current election. So, but I've got to ask you, uh, what does your research kind of bring to bear on the current primary elections? Well, what I'm struck by in this election is the uh, kind of obsession with authenticity. And this is a theme I develop in the book as well. Both Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump, and for a while there, it seemed Ben Carson, seemed to be riding uh, a wave of popularity based at least in part on the fact that they weren't 
coached and managed by the spin meisters or spin doctors that they seem to be just telling it like it is, speaking from the heart and so on. Now, we haven't yet seen the stories about Sanders pollsters and Trump's ad makers. You know, these guys do exist. They just are kind of remaining off stage. But one thing I think Republic of Spin shows is that this notion of the authentic candidate, and I deal with this, Obama ran this way, McCain ran this way, has sort of been a, a fantasy or a wish of the public going way back. I have this wonderful scene in there where Eisenhower, who's struggling in 1952 to get his footing as a candidate, you know, he's never run for office before, and he jumps into the presidential race. So at one point before a speech in Detroit, he declares, I've ripped up my speech. I've Jettison my speechwriters, you know, this is just going to be me speaking. And he gets these rave reviews from the Washington Post and the New York Times. Well, sure enough, you know, within a few days, the speechwriters are back at work. It's it's a big publicity stunt. Right. So authenticity is always artificially constructed. It doesn't mean that it's completely phony. I mean, we often do get a sense of who these people are and their personality comes through. I'm not such a cynic that I think all we see of politics is fake, but there's always the hand of media managers, coaches, speechwriters, pollsters, they're always in there. All right, David Greenberg, thank you so much. Sure, thank you, Pamela. David's new book is called Republic of Spin, an inside history of the American presidency, and it's reviewed in this week's book review by Michael Beschloss. Greg Coles is here now with Bestseller News. Hi, Greg. Hi, Pamela. This is an exciting week. Yeah, the uh, list is finally shaking off its doldrums. We knew this was going to um, come sometime. And, uh, of course, on the fiction side of things, it comes as series writers are starting to release the new books in their series. There are four new titles this week, and three of the four are series novels. Starting down at number 15, Robert Harris concludes his Ancient Rome trilogy. Uh, the third book in that series is called Dictator, new at number 15. Then at number nine, Tammy Hogue is back with the fifth novel in her um, series about the Minneapolis detectives Nikki Liska and Sam Kovac. This novel is called The Bitter Season, new at number nine. And winner of the longest series of these three? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Stuart Woods continues his long-running Stone Barrington series with the 36th title in the series. That's number 36, uh, Scandalous Behavior, new at number five on the list. The one... uh, hardcover fiction newcomer this week that is not a series is new at number one and it's uh, by elizabeth strout who of course won the pulitzer prize with olive kitteridge the name of her new novel is my name is lucy barton which claire Massoud reviewed on our cover recently and i feel like the nonfiction list is equally exciting and interesting yeah, for this the week. first time in a long time there's change on the nonfiction list um down at number 10 There's a memoir called The Only Pirate at the Party. It's by a woman named Lindsay Sterling with a co-writer, Brooke S. Passy. Lindsay Sterling um, has become a star on YouTube and social media as kind of a hip-hop violinist. She dances while she plays electric violin and she choreographs. Oh, everybody can do that. (laughs) You, you of course, remember her from America's Got Talent, where she lost in 2010. uh, But she made a triumphant return recently. just to kind of show people what what she can still do. And um, really, since since losing America's Got Talent, she has gone on to forge her own career and, and her own path. 
Uh, so now she's got this memoir, The Only Pirate at the Party, new at number 10. All the way up at the top of the list, there are two new titles. At number two, Pope Francis uh, has written a book with the Vatican reporter Andrea Tornielli. The name of his book is The Name of God is Mercy. It's kind of this Q&A format. Tornielli asks him questions all relating to mercy. Um, Pope Francis has declared this year to be the year of mercy in the Catholic Church. He's really made this a centerpiece of his papacy from the start. He's uh, just emphasizing the theme of mercy as being more important than strict adherence to uh, the laws Mm -hmm. um, of of the church. That book is uh, new at number two. Then at number one, a book that you predicted would be on the list this week, uh, Paul Kalanithi's book, When Breath Becomes Air. Paul Kalanithi is the doctor who found out that he had lung cancer when he was 36 years was old. Was the doctor, alas. <laughs> yes. Uh, this is a posthumous book. Yes, it is. There have been a number of uh, books, like The Last Lecture, um, other books that came out posthumously that were explicitly about confronting death. Even Tuesdays with Maury, not a posthumous book, but came out after Maury's death. Right. And Being Mortal is still on the list at number six. Yes, it is. (laughs) (laughs) A lot about dying. I read this book late in the night on Tuesday, and I have to admit, I was crying so hard at the end that I had to turn to Les Miserables uh, to cheer myself (laughs) up. (laughs) Um, Actually true. Um, It's an incredibly moving book. Clearly, you're not the only one who thinks so. I guess I'm not the only one who likes to cry over books. Thanks, Greg. Thanks, Pamela. Remember, there's more at nytimes.com books. Our producer is Jocelyn Gonzalez, and you can always write to us at books at nytimes.com. Thanks for listening. For The New York Times, I'm Pamela Paul.